Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. I'll make of you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonours you I will curse. And in all and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, the oak of Moreh. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to, and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. Bethel on the west, I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram sojourned, journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. And then we're turning to the Psalms. Psalm 67. through seven been given the title make your face shine upon us may the may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that that your way may be known on earth your saving power among all nations let the peoples praise you O God let all the peoples praise you let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us at all the ends of the earth. Fear him. So far the reading of God's holy word. Uh, please keep your Bibles open at uh, Psalm 67, since that is the uh, passage that we'll be focusing on um, this evening. I want to uh, talk for a little bit about the uh, first person possessive pronoun as it applies to God. And if you think that um, I just submitted my entry for the worst sermon introduction ever, um, I, I do have a point. Um, the first person possessive pronoun applying to God um, would, of course, be my God. Um, so let's talk a little bit about this phrase. Um, it's interesting that although we live in one of the most secular countries in the world, um, this is probably one of the most commonly used explanations. Uh, exclamations, sorry. Um, people say, my God, or oh my God, in a uh, massive uh, number of contexts. Um, so that's perhaps the, the first use. 
um, of the phrase that I want to highlight. Uh, and as uh, Bible-believing Christians, um, we know that it's a serious thing to take the name of the Lord in vain. Um, and hopefully it is not something that we would do um, very often or at all. Because obviously we confess that the name of God is, is much more than simply an exclamation or a profanity that people will use constantly without thinking about it. But, you know, I, I think for most of us here, we can give ourselves a tick um, saying we don't use the name of God uh, in this way. There's another really interesting um, way of saying the phrase, my God, that, again, I don't think anybody here is tempted by. Um, I go for a walk almost every night, and on my walk, I pass uh, a house belonging to a, a Hindu family. Uh, and sometimes, if the timing's right, I will see the lady of the house um, lighting candles in front of the, uh, the idols uh, in that home. And it kind of set me thinking, um, she could probably, in a real sense, uh, refer to those little idols as my gods, in the plural. Um, in, not only in the sense that she's worshipping them, um, but she probably paid really good money for them. Um, you know, they uh, belong to her. Um, they belong to the household. They, they're on the inventory, um, as it were. And again, you know, um, hopefully there's not any of us here who, who has a graven image um, somewhere in our house um, that we own, because, you know, that would against the Ten Commandments, for one thing. Um, so again, we can kind of give ourselves a tick, saying we don't use the phrase, my God, um, in this way. But yet there's another way of saying, my God, that I think we're all tempted by. And that's kind of where I want to go with this. Um, some of you may be familiar with C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters which is supposedly advice from a more senior to a more junior devil as to how to best uh, tempt uh, human beings. And in it, Screwtape writes the following about the use of the phrase, my God. Um, he says, we teach them not to notice the different senses of the possessive pronouns. The finely graded differences that run from my boots through my dog to my servant, my wife, my father, my master, my country, my God. They can be taught to reduce all these senses to that of my boots, the my of ownership. In a sense, we can say, we can use my God as if we own God. Now, on, on one level, that is a really blasphemous thought uh, because, you know, who on earth can say that we own God. But in terms of our practical attitudes towards our Heavenly Father, we can think of my God as the God who is obligated to care for me, to bless me, to look out for me, and who should do that only for me. God is my God in the sense that I am the recipient the rightful recipient, perhaps, in my own uh, eyes, of the blessings of God. And we can hold this notion to such an extent that we can even become angry when God cares for and blesses others. Perhaps the best biblical example of this is the prophet Jonah, where God 
comes to him, God is grieved by the idolatry, the rebellion of the city of Nineveh, and he calls on Jonah to take this message of repentance to them. God wants to save them. God wants to bring them back, extend mercy and blessing to them. Jonah's reaction? It displeased Jonah, the Bible says, and he was very angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I know that you are a merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. In other words, Jonah, at the end of the book of Jonah, tells God, how dare you be merciful to others? How dare you bless them? This is what I was afraid of all along. Jonah throws this epic tantrum, as it were, because God dared to show mercy to others. There are many other examples in the Bible of where people seem to think that the best possible response to God's blessings is to say, this is mine. This is all mine. God is obligated to bless me and not many other people. Before we are too quick to condemn, let's confess that we may even be guilty of it ourselves. And the best corrective to this kind of understanding of God is to remember, this is crucial, and Jonah needed to remember that, we need to remember that, that God's blessing is not diminished in the sharing. If someone, if we can put this in New Testament terms, gets to know Jesus, gets to understand the joy of salvation, that doesn't make me any less saved, doesn't make me any less blessed, doesn't get less because it is shared. Grace can increase and does increase. So in our example above, God's grace to the people of Nineveh didn't mean that there were less grace available to Israel. And so there's a rich tradition in Scripture when speaking about the blessings of God, the mercies of God, to say, this must be shared. We read together the calling of Abraham earlier, where God uh, comes to Abraham, gives him this momentous calling that in many ways is uh, key in the unfolding plan of God's salvation. Abraham, leave your people, leave your country, go to the place that I tell you to go. And Abraham, listen to this, I will bless you. It's a really important thing to hear when you're about to take a life-changing journey, isn't it? Uh, that, that God will be with him, that God will bless him, that he would even bless his descendants, that he would make them a great nation. And Abraham may have thought at that point, this is it. This is all that God wanted to say. Abram, go to this place. I will bless you. I will give you many descendants. But God follows it up at the end of verse 2 with the following words. I will bless you, Abraham. Why? So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, verse 3, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And then that wonderful end of verse 3. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the blessing is not only about Abraham. It is that. He will be blessed. But it is also about the nations. It is about God's mercy extending to everyone. 
And isn't it fascinating then, when we read at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus, that it's taken right back to this point, to Abraham, the father of the faithful, who received the blessing and who in that sense can be seen uh, as the one who extended blessings to all nations. And so we have the phrase, blessed to be a blessing. And it might seem like a, a trite, throwaway line, but in, in so many ways, it is a core biblical truth. When we think about the blessing of God, whether it is material blessings, whether it's the blessing of salvation, whatever blessing we can think of, as Christians, we should immediately ask the question, how can others be blessed through this as well? And we see this very clearly displayed in the psalm we read together tonight. And now let's turn, therefore, to Psalm 67. First thing we should notice is that this is, of course, a psalm in which the blessing of God is absolutely central. Um, most commentators agree that this is a psalm that Israel sung at the time of the bringing in of the harvest. Uh, in an agricultural society, there's probably no greater high point of the year than celebrating a successful harvest. And it's also, of course, a time when you are hopefully quite likely to think about God's blessing. Uh, and in this sense, the people of Israel uh, takes stock, stops for a moment, and praises God for his blessing and call upon him for further blessings. Psalm 67, verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Interesting that this or these words are an almost perfect echo of the, the great priestly blessing that the Levites were supposed to say over the people of, of God. We'll end, with this, end the service with this later on, uh, but you probably know this really well. Number 6, verse 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So this psalm very clearly plugs into this great tradition of uh, thinking about God's blessing and even of the priests uh, blessing God's people. And so this is a wonderful prayer, isn't it? That God will indeed bless. And he is ultimately the giver of all good things. In the letter of James, this point is made explicit where James writes, James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. When we receive a blessing, our first response should therefore be to thank the blesser, the one who gave it to us. As far as many people are concerned, we can kind of just stop now that, you know, the, the psalm might end here um, because, you know, we've prayed for God's blessing. We acknowledge that blessing comes from God. He is our God. He is my God. He's the one who blesses. That's enough to know. But thankfully, the psalm doesn't stop here. The psalmist continues, and he does so in a way that cements the place of this psalm as one of the high points of the entire Old Testament as far as Israel's understanding of her calling 
is concerned. As such, it is also a reminder of the worldwide calling of the Christian church. Henry Spence wrote about this psalm. No wonder this beautiful little psalm has been enshrined so prominently in the worship of the Christian church. Its most remarkable character is its worldwide breadth of sympathy, hope, and prayer. It's like a beam from the unrisen sun of Christianity. The more one studies the intense, narrow national sentiment of the Jews, the more plain it is that strains like these could only be inspired by the Spirit of God. Because this psalm really runs counter, not only to our own inclinations to hoard God's blessing, but also to a a streak or a strain that was present in, in so much of Israel's national life. Again, saying, God is our God, our God alone. And yet this psalm kind of breaks through all of that, saying that the nations should uh, also share in the blessing. Because this psalm, effectively, is a fervent prayer for the blessing of the nations. So the psalm starts, may God bless us. May he make his face shine upon us. And then it follows this up with the word that, or in some translations, so that. And what follows is this, that or so that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. In other words, we think about the blessing of God, not only in the context of receiving it, but also in terms of how others may be blessed through it. Blessing, again, is not merely given so that we can enjoy it. It is also to be shared. In fact, the evidence of God's blessing should be so clear that Israel could act as a kind of attractive force that would pull the nations towards a relationship with God. In fact, Isaiah prophesied a time, Isaiah 63, when nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. If this was true in Old Testament times, that Israel should, through its life of worship and enjoying God's blessing, attract people to the worship of God, how much more true should it be in our time, now that the full extent of God's mercies and blessing have been revealed in Christ? The way in which we enjoy and live out the blessing of salvation in Jesus should be of such a nature that we too can act as a magnet to those outside the kingdom. It's instructive that this, is, this psalm is not simply a very vague or general prayer for the nations, a prayer that we just kind of mouth off and um, not really think about. It's not a Lord bless the whole world type of prayer. In fact, the psalmist prays three very specific things for the nations. In other words, for those who are still outside of the orbit of God's blessing. Let's look briefly at each one of them. The psalmist prays that the nations will receive divine revelation and salvation. In other words, that they would get to know God. Verse 2, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. The nations are blinded by the spirit of the age, do not know the saving power of God's message. Again, if I can use New Testament language, they do not know the gospel. And this prayer is a prayer for understanding, an understanding of the ways of God that is so complete that it will equate with saving faith. Note there that the psalmist prays 
for the saving power of God to be known among all nations. We can translate this psalm or this petition then as, Lord, reveal yourself to a lost world. Bring them to salvation. May people, therefore, of every nation one day be able to sing in the marvelous words of John Newton's amazing grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. God revealed his saving power to me. Then in verses 3 and 5, we have a prayer that God's blessing to Israel will not only result in people being saved, but also people worshipping God. Twice in this psalm, in verses um, 3 and 5, we read the phrase, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you, verses 3 and 5. And verse 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Here the psalmist foresees the nations coming before God in worship and adoration. There can be no more important prayer for the nations than that they would achieve their ultimate purpose by returning to their creator in worship. As John Piper famously wrote, missions, in other words, outreach, exist because worship doesn't. What he means by that is we were created to worship God, to know God, to find ultimate fulfillment in God. As Augustine famously said, our hearts will remain restless within us until it rests in God. And until people bow down and worship their creator and savior. As such, we should pray and work towards the day when people from all nations will bow down before God in worship. And incredibly, at the end of the Bible, it's like the curtain is drawn away a little bit and, and we see a glimpse of this happening. We know how this story ends. Revelation 5 uh, from verse 9, they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God. And here we uh, have just the nations in view. You purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Many people on this planet do not worship God, do not know God. But in his mercy, God will call people from every tribe and language and people and nation to him. And in a mysterious way that we perhaps don't fully understand, God will use the blessings that he bestows on his people as instruments to call people to worship him. Hence, the repeated petition there, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. So it's a prayer for salvation, in a sense. May your saving power be known. It's a prayer that people will become worshippers of God. Let all the peoples praise you. And also, a prayer that people will be brought into the kingdom. Verse 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. May the nations therefore also enjoy the benefits of belonging to God's kingdom and following his decrees and teaching. May they find a new way of living, a way of living in which loving God 
and loving our neighbor becomes the rule of the road. A different society, therefore, based on who God is. So in summary, we see the psalmist here reflecting on God's mercy and blessing and following this up with these three prayer requests. That the nations may be saved, that the nations may praise God, and that the nations may enjoy God's just rule. In other words, he prays for the good news of who God is, this blessing God, the God who blesses, that the understanding of who he is will fully enter the lives of those still on the outside. From a New Testament perspective, we understand just how good this news is. Uh, far better, perhaps, than the people of Israel understood when this psalm was first sung because they lived before the time of Christ. We know of God's amazing grace in Christ, how his blood was shed on the cross for our salvation, how his power was confirmed through the empty grave, and how he sits at the right hand of God to intercede for us. Knowing this is an amazing blessing in the fullest sense of the word. However, again, may we never forget that this is not a blessing that is diminished in the sharing, but that God's grace in Christ is infinite. We can pray for God's blessing on us and also for God's blessing on those still on the outside, and there will be enough. As Paul writes in um, Ephesians uh, 3, to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Unsearchable riches, boundless riches. The gospel is enough for everyone who God calls to him. God's blessing will never run out. And the church's believers are therefore asked to freely share this message with a world that so desperately needs it. And this then brings us full circle to talk again about my God, the idea with which we started. It, of course, occurs in Psalm 67 as well, although in the plural in this case. End of verse 6, and God, our God, will bless us. God, our God, will bless us. And again, we might be tempted to say at this point, wonderful, more blessing. Let's keep it for ourselves. But then we haven't read verse 7. The psalmist is not letting this go. He's again reminding us that it's not only about us. God will bless us and all the ends of the earth will fear him. So this psalm is such a powerful reminder that although the blessings of God are wonderful in themselves, they should always cause us to think about how they may be shared with those who are still on the outside. And as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who have received his blessing, may this always be at the forefront of our minds. Whatever blessing we receive, let us ask the question, how can this be shared corporately in terms of the life of a congregation like this? This question should also be on our minds. So I encourage to hear in the session room how more and more people are looking uh, to hear the word of God through this congregation. May we, may you, effectively share the blessing of the gospel with them. 
This morning you heard about blessings being shared on the other side of the world, in India. Uh, may I encourage you to keep supporting that work. And then individually, may I ask the question, may all of us ask the question, how can we be people who can say of ourselves, I'm blessed to be a blessing? What are the implications of that in your own life? Maybe let me just end with a um, few words from John Calvin, who said the following in a commentary on this psalm. He wrote, wrote, Here it is to be remembered that every benefit which God bestowed on his people was, as it were, a light held out before the eyes of the world to attract the attention of the nations to him. From this, the psalmist argue that when God supply the wants of his people, the consequence would be to increase the fear of his name, since all ends of the earth would, by what they saw of his fatherly regard for his own, submit themselves with greater cheerfulness to him. May this be indeed our experience as well, as we worship and praise God, enjoy his blessing, and share it with those who so desperately need it. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for, this, for your word and for this wonderful short psalm that just packs so much truth into just a few lines. Fundamentally, the truth about us indeed enjoying your blessing, but also then praying that it won't stop with us, that people will come to a saving knowledge of you, that people will worship you, that people will submit themselves to your just rule. May all the peoples indeed praise you. And Lord, where you have brought this body of believers together in this place to enjoy your blessing, we pray that you will indeed make of this congregation a blessing in this place, that they may also experience what it is to share your blessing. Thank you that they've been able to do that over many years. And we pray that you will Establish them even firmer in your blessing and use them, Lord, like a city of hill whose light cannot be hidden to share the blessing of the gospel, but also blessings on so many other levels with those whom you have placed them in contact with. We thank you that we can pray these things in Jesus' name.